The following sermon was delivered on October 11, 2020 at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. Mr. Zachary Groff brought to this sermon entitled The Bounty of the Triune God on Psalm 65. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. In Selection 181, the author of that hymn, is not a famous man, but in no small way, a notable Protestant minister of some of the darkest years in Germany's history. Martin Rickart wrote this hymn in 1636. It's a hymn we frequently sing around Thanksgiving time in this country, and it's a hymn sung all around the world particularly in harvest time, but just throughout the year as Christians give thanks to God. Now, what isn't told you about him in your hymnal, in your Trinity Psalter hymnal, is that Martin Rinkhart ministered in, let's just say, a difficult series of years. The following year, after he wrote that particular poem, which was then set to music many years later, the following year, he buried thousands of victims of plague, famine, and war, mostly of plague, including his own dear wife. And he averaged 11 funerals a day. Now, the churchyard here would get filled up pretty quickly if we were doing that here in little old Antioch. And one of those, I think certain days, the records show that he buried 40 to 50 people on a couple of them, but on average, 11 funerals a day. I can't imagine that. And yet, he never retracted those words. He never said, uh, forget about what I said. God is cruel and mean. No. He forever and always declared God to be the God worthy of all thanksgiving and praise. And we live in a time, not nearly as dramatic or even noticeable to our eyes, but we live in a time of pandemic, of plague. We live in a time of not peasant revolts, but violent demonstrations in the streets that light up our TV screens and our, and our internet screens and computer screens. We live in a time where the rumblings of war are not absent at all. Uh, whether those wars be in the Caucasus or the Middle East or in, or in Nigeria or even perhaps in our own hemisphere, we live in perilous times. And so the question then that follows from that in light of Martin Rinkart's ministry, but more significantly in light of Psalm 65 is, for what can you praise God? Is God still worthy of our thanksgiving and our praise? Well, the ringing answer of this psalm is absolutely Yes, undeniably so. Consider the context, if you will, with me. This psalm follows fast on the heels of four psalms that are characterized by petition. Cries of King David, the messianic king, to God. Cries for deliverance. Cries for provision. Cries for all manner of response. In Psalm 61, verse 2, David writes, From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Psalm 62, 
He's, he's waiting in silence for God. He declares that. And David twice addresses him as the rock, my rock, and my salvation. In Psalm 63, he says, O God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And in Psalm 64 opens, Hear my voice, O God, in my complaint. Preserve my life from dread of the enemy. Are any of these themes absent in Psalm 65? They're everywhere present, each one of them. Psalm 65 is a response. David has made his petitions. The Lord has responded, and now David gives him praise. And what I seek to show you is that in this psalm, which is a universal call of, uh, of worship to all the nations, that in this psalm, we are shown that God who hears your prayers saves your soul and enriches the earth deserves your praise. God who hears your prayers saves your soul and enriches the earth deserves your praise. And thus, the sermon tonight is titled The Bounty of the Triune God. Hopefully you're seeing even now some premonitions of where I'm going to go with this. And how this relates to the, the, the nature of God as triune, three persons in one God, one God in three persons. So we'll look at this under three headings flowing out of that main proposition. God who hears your prayers deserves your praise, seen especially in verses 1 to 4. And then God who saves your soul deserves your praise in verses 5 through 8. And God who enriches the earth deserves your praise in verses 9 through 13. When we consider verses 1 to 4, look at them with me if you will. We note the, both the worshipful context and content of Christian prayers, if we consider this a Christian prayer, which we ought to. And we also see that the hearer of Christian prayers is the triune God. First, the context and content. Christian prayer is offered as a part of devotion and worship. Look at the superscription of the text. For the choir director, a psalm of David, a song. David penned this psalm for corporate worship. This is for devotion. The devotion not just of David, but of God's people. And so throughout the psalm, you'll see um, uh, first-person plural pronouns. You'll see him referencing scenes of corporate worship, particularly in these first four verses. But then also realities of everyday life that would have affected every single person who would have gathered in the courts of the Lord in ancient Israel, and in fact, are not all that remote from our own experience, particularly the historical experience of this church being here in a rural community. Um, but not just a superscription, but notice the vocabulary in the first four verses. He says, uh, praise in Zion, the vow will be performed. Uh, you who hear prayer... All men coming, making an approach. Um, you forgive. Literally, you make atonement for our sins. And then how blessed is the one whom you choose to bring near to you to dwell in your courts. We will be satisfied with the goodness of your house, your holy temple. This is worship language. This is a vocabulary of ancient Israelite Old Testament church worship. It would be as if, if we were to adapt it for our own experience, we would say... You call us into worship. You hear our prayers of confession. You assure us of your pardon in Christ. 
You receive from us our tithes and offerings. You send us out with a good word. You give us instruction. If you had heard that as a Christian on the street, you would think, oh, he's talking about a worship service. And just similarly, those who would hear these words, either from David's own lip or read them, recited, uh, hear them in, in worship, in the assembly, they would say he's talking about a scene of worship, a temple scene. And in this scene of worship... Uh, offered in that context, the content then expresses praise and thanksgiving and includes confession and petition. This praise and thanksgiving, of which this prayer is expressive, note what it's characterized by. It's characterized right, off, right out of the gate by silence. The Hebrew might be rendered appropriately, uh, your praise is silence before you, or silence is your praise before you. Some older commentators, um, perhaps wrongly, but poignantly nonetheless, say that this ought to evoke images of a Near Eastern servant going before his king. What does a servant do when he enters into the king's presence? Think back to Esther coming into the presence of her husband and what she was fearful of. What did the king have to do? He had to acknowledge you before you could speak. So you might be standing there for a while and standing in silence. This is one of the reasons why we're prioritizing silence as a, as a, really as a, as a part of our worship here, as a part of the liturgy, is we come into God's presence and we are to wait in reverence. Not just preparing our hearts, but, but earnestly, eagerly awaiting that call into worship when God shall say, come to me, my children, speak to me, dialogue with me. And that is what is to characterize our worship. That silence, that reverence, that solemnity. Now, that doesn't mean we can't be loud. I know I'm being awful loud right now. I can't help myself. We give that corporate amen after every song. And it thunders even in this little space, especially in this little space. One of the charms of it. But not only is this characterized by reverence, be it expressed loudly together or expressed in our silence, but also these vows that David mentions in the second half of verse 1. They are particularly geared for thanksgiving. You make a vow when you're in distress. Frequently, you make a vow in distress in the Old Testament. And even today, we can do this. We don't frequently do it anymore, but uh, our confession of faith speaks of it. You make a vow to the Lord in distress for things lawful to perform certain deeds if God is to do what? Bring relief, extend mercy, deliver you out of a present trial or distress. And then, so the vow itself is an expression of thanksgiving. And that's what makes this psalm especially appropriate in our American context as a thanksgiving psalm. The word thanks, it doesn't appear here. Praise appears. But the vow that implies an act of, of thanking God for what he has done, for delivering on his promises. But that's not it. As we progress through these first four verses, we get to verse 3. We're going to come back to verse 2. We get to verse 3, and you see what David says. He says, Words or deeds of iniquities prevail against me. As for our transgressions, you forgive them. We see that Christian prayer includes confession. Confession. Now, always closely followed by acknowledgement that God is the God who forgives, who makes atonement, who propitiates our sin. 
who expiates, who cleanses us of sin, who provides the way out, as it were, who satisfies his own justice. And how does he do this? It's in the death of his son, Jesus Christ. We'll discuss that more under the second heading. But this Christian prayer, including confession, it's a sinner's own prayer. Interestingly, David uh, says, iniquities prevail against me. He's he's talking about himself. This might bring to mind Psalm uh, 38, in which David says, For my iniquities are gone over my head as a heavy burden. They weigh too much for me. Psalm 38, verse 4. But then he very quickly shifts gears, as it were, and says, As for our transgressions, you forgive them. And so in our worship, just as Dr. Piper said during the prayer of confession, you're taking these words, which are corporate, but then you're, you, you're making them your own. When you come into worship, there is a particular aspect of, of our confession, and there is a corporate aspect. We're confessing together our sins, but we're also each coming as individual sinners before a holy God and saying, forgive me, O God, for my iniquities are gone over my head and they weigh me down. Have you done that this afternoon? Perhaps this morning in, in wherever worship, wherever you were for worship this morning, did you go in with a keen awareness of your own sin, of seeking from God pardon and assurance thereof? Sins of thought, word, and deed committed this past week or perhaps lingering even longer than that. This is what God invites you to do as one who forgives transgressions, Who makes atonement? Who does the reconciling work? And then in our petitions, how blessed is the one whom you choose and bring near to you. In verse 2, to you all men come. Why would someone come before a king? Again, recalling back to mind Esther, why did she go before Darius? It was to make a petition, to seek something from him. And so have you done that? This afternoon, you know, there is a self-sufficient man who comes into the courts of God and says, thank you, God, for making me how I am such that I don't really need anything else from you. I got it made. Ah, that arrogance. The Lord spits that out. And then there is the man who makes too much of his sin. What do I mean by that? He comes into the courts of God and says, wretched sinner that I am, there's nothing you can do for me. You have friends like that. Have you ever found yourself in those moments? I do. I have friends like that. Or they say, I, you know, I, I like it, but I, I couldn't come to church. I'm just too, I'm too wicked. I'd get struck by lightning. And my response to that isn't, you're not that bad. No, my response to that is, God is not that weak. There's nothing he can't do for you. Whatever you've done, God can cast that as far away from you as the east is from the west. And so he invites you to come. And in fact, all men come to him. Men of every nation, every tribe, every language. And who is this one to whom the men come? Who is this one whom we approach and whose courts we dwell with thanksgiving and praise, as Psalm 100 says? He is you who hear prayer or the hearer of prayers. Calvin rightly 
remarks that this is a title of God. Now, it's not necessarily one that we hear all the time, like Jehovah Jireh or, or one of his names. Uh, it's not like Elohim or, or one that's repeated over and over again. But it is one that is particularly apt in this prayer. You who hear prayer. And this is a title particularly, preeminently for the Father in concert with the Son and the Spirit. You see, the triune God's prerogative, his, his property, his practice, his pleasure, his nature, his glory is this, that he hears prayers. How is he distinct from every other God? He hears. He hears. All other gods of men are mute and deaf and impotent. But our God is the hearer of prayers. Christ addresses him in the Lord's Prayer, which we just recited out of Matthew 6 and Luke 11. He says, our Father. In his high priestly prayer, Christ addresses him again in John 17 as Father. And so who is, it, who is the God that we address, who hears us? It is Father, preeminently so. Now, as I said, it's in concert with the Son and the Spirit. We cannot divide the three into three beings. No, far be it from us to be tritheists. But preeminently so, when we approach God, we are addressing our Father who hears us. You know, there are several fathers in our midst. There's at least one soon-to-be father in our midst. And I guarantee that unless you are physically deaf, you can pick your kids or one of your many kids' voices out of the crowd. You hear the voice of your children. I can hear my Judah and my Abby and my Zoe and my Hannah and my Samuel. Even supernaturally so seems at times. Wake up in the middle of the night and you hear the babies crying from across the house. And you arise and you go to him. How much quicker is our father to arise and to go to us when we cry out to him in the spirit of adoption through the son who has gone into his presence to intercede on our behalf. We go to him not just as children but as deliverees. Those who have been delivered out of darkness and brought into light by the Son. We go to him as dwellers in the courts of God. Note what it says here. How blessed is the one whom you choose and bring near to you to dwell in your courts. We will be satisfied with the goodness of your house, your holy temple. And so these two aspects of our salvation, of being delivered, being brought to God, and dwelling with God, they're knit together and they're evidenced in our very prayers. The whole scope of salvation and of redemptive history is there whenever we get on our knees to pray. And Christian prayer is offered by recipients of the Father's electing grace, those who are chosen by him. There are some who would say that Paul invented the doctrine of election. That predestination is a Pauline innovation, particularly in church history. The men who make those comments are those who want to throw Paul out of the Bible. But look, it's right here on the lips of David in the middle of the second book of Psalms. How blessed is the one whom you choose or blessed is the man whom you elect to bring near to you, to dwell in your courts. So if you're here tonight, what are you here for? Well, I can't speak to your motivations. I cannot see into your hearts. 
But God has brought you here to worship him. For that is why he fills up church buildings. That is why he filled up the tabernacle and the temple. That is why he has, through endless ages, gathered a people to himself for his praise. For God who saves your soul deserves your praise. We've seen the God who hears prayers who deserves your praise. Now we consider the God who saves your soul who deserves your praise in verses 5 through 8. By awesome deeds, you answer us in righteousness, O God of our salvation. The God who saves is demonstrably awesome in salvation. He demonstrates for us his power and his ability and his authority to save. Remember what I said at the beginning of the sermon. In the previous four Psalms, what we have are petitions by David. I mean, there's acknowledgement that he will arise and he will save woven into them. But, uh, but the focus of them is a cry out to God in distress. And now here, David confesses, by awesome deeds, you answer us. He not only hears, he answers. And his answer is salvation. He gives us another title for God. O God of our salvation. So Christian, who do you think when you hear the word salvation? Who ought you to think of? Why, how about he whose name is salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ? Our minds ought to be immediately drawn to him. In fact, I would say that David's mind would be immediately drawn to he who was to come after him in his line to be the salvation of Israel. He who would bring the most awesome deeds. He who would bring the church into heaven. He who is heaven come down. God secures his church by his awesome deeds. Not only has he delivered David, but consider all that he's done in the past. That as he went out before Moses and Aaron and the Israelites in a cloud of fire by, uh, by uh, night and a cloud of a pillar of cloud by day, leading forth his people out of slavery, out of bondage, and into the promised land. This exodus movement is one that he is pleased to repeat over and over again, not only in the history of the church, but in our own lives. For he has transferred us from darkness into light, from slavery into freedom, and where his spirit is, there is liberty. And how does he do this? Two ways highlighted by this particular psalm. First, God performs all his holy will by the strength of his power, by his very ability. Note what it says there. Who establishes the mountains by his strength, being girded with might. It's speaking of the creative power of God, that by his word, things come into existence. By his word, the mountains were founded into the earth for all intents and purposes in our eyes, immovable. And by his word, they could be thrown into the sea because he's able to do that. And I make this distinction from his authority to do that, which is highlighted in the next verse, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, and the tumult of the peoples. God accomplishes all his holy will by the authority of his word. So the strength of his power and the authority of his word. Now, why would I say... That this stilling of the seas and their roaring and the tumult of the peoples, why would I say this is authority and not ability? There's nothing in the text that, that suggests that, or is there? Consider Matthew 8. How does Christ calm the raging of the seas? By his word. Why? Because he has authority over the seas. And the tumults of the people. 
the turmoil of the peoples, the raging of the nations. Christ is king over those nations to silence them at will. This past week, uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan in the Caucasus, just south of uh, Georgia and uh, near Chechnya, north of Iran and Iraq and, and uh, east of Turkey. In that area, they have a this disputed territory, it's been disputed for several decades now, if not longer. And they went, Azerbaijan with Turkish air support invaded Armenia. Well, anyway, this past week, a couple days ago, Russia, of all powers, brokered a ceasefire. And um, being of Armenian descent myself, I have a lot of Armenian friends. There's a lot of anxiety over this issue and a great sigh of relief when the ceasefire was announced. Well, not hours later, our Azerbaijan resumed hostilities, even while the Armenian soldiers were out collecting their dead from the trenches and the fields. And so basically stabbed the Armenians in the back again and, and pursued this course of war. So what does that tell you about the ceasefire? Russia might have brokered it, but it wasn't, in the, it wasn't by the authoritative declaration of Christ because it was immediately broken. Well, man cannot break that which Christ in his authority decrees. He is royal. He is not just powerful, but has every right to decree such and such to be the case, including the calming of the peoples, the roaring of the seas. And over whom is this God awesome, able, and authoritative? Well, none other but the entire world, all nations. Look at verse 8. They who dwell in the ends of the earth stand in awe of your signs. You make the dawn and the sunset shout for joy. Christ is Savior who inspires all creation's praise and adoration, starting with the end of the verse. He makes the dawn and the sunset shout for joy. There used to be a saying about the British Empire that the sun neither rose nor set on the British Empire because literally it was all over the world. They had territory uh, such that at any, any moment during a 24-hour period, the sun was shining on the British Empire, on Queen Victoria's domain. And at any time, the moon was shining on Queen Victoria's domain, unless, I guess, if it was a new moon, in which case it wasn't shining at all. But the stars were glimmering upon it. But that was just speaking to the extent of, uh, of you know, Britain's power over the world and its authority. Well, God in Christ, he makes the dawn and the sunset shout for joy from east to west, from the very ends of the earth. He calls forth praise. He's king of all nations, even to the remotest ends of the earth. They who dwell in the ends of the earth stand in awe of your signs. I like to frequently do this, perhaps too frequently, but it doesn't get old for me. When we think of our current historical situation, consider where David was in his situation when he wrote these words. He was on the other side of the planet. He didn't even know this existed. And then Jesus comes on the scene, the incarnate Son of God. He does know that this exists, but he executes a ministry from Galilee to Jerusalem. Yeah, he walked a lot, but he didn't go very far in human terms. And yet here we are in the very ends of the earth. None of us, perhaps, of Jewish descent. And yet we're gathering together to praise the triune God, to praise the deliverer of Israel, 
to praise Jesus Christ, the son of David, David's son and David's Lord. In what we're doing, David's words are vindicated. Perhaps someone would have scoffed at him uh, back in, what would have this have been, around 1,000, 1100 B.C., But yet today we stand and we say, David was right. All the ends of the earth stand in awe of the signs, the miraculous wonders of God, the wonderful works of the triune God. And that brings us then to the conclusion that Christ is sovereign God the Son, worthy to be revered and feared. It is before Christ that we stand then in silence, And in praise, because he is worthy, he is authoritative. It is to him that we say, as David says in the next psalm, and Dr. Piper used in our call to worship, how awesome are your works. Because of the greatness of your power, your enemies will give feigned obedience to you. You, O Lord, have all authority in heaven and on earth, just as Christ said in Matthew 28. So the psalm might have stopped here at verse 8. And it would have made perfect sense. It would have even been complete in, as far as we would know. So why continue to verse 9? Well, what David shows us, what the Spirit of God through David shows us in verses 9 to 11, is that not only is it that God who hears your prayers deserves your praise, and God who saves your soul deserves your praise, but also God who enriches the earth deserves your praise. God enriches the earth with plenty, and the life-giving Spirit of God, therefore, is worthy of your praise. Look at verse 9 with me. You visit the earth and cause it to overflow. You greatly enrich it. The stream of God is full of water. You prepare their grain, for thus you prepare the earth. You water its furrows abundantly. You settle its ridges. You soften it with showers. You bless its growth. You have crowned the year with your bounty and your paths drip with fatness. The pastures of the wilderness drip and the hills gird themselves with rejoicing. The meadows are clothed with flocks and the valleys are covered with grain. They shout for joy. Yes, they sing. Image after image drawn from agriculture, drawn from uh, his Middle Eastern context, but not all that unfamiliar to us, are piled upon another to give praise to God. You do this. You do that. You visit. You enrich. You prepare, you water, you settle, you soften, you bless, you crown. And so all creation sings your praise. God here is actively involved in bringing forth produce from his creation. So if you have a concept of providence that God said it and then forgets it and lets it run its course, right here, let's correct that misconception. Here we see God actively involved in all the processes of nature. And everything bringing to pass the produce of the earth, bringing it up from the ground, sending forth the rains, like the rain today, either in torrents or in soft drizzling, to nourish the ground, that it would bear fruit for him. God generously blesses the earth with great abundance. He's not stingy. Look at what David says of him. The stream of God is full of water. He he may have been referring here to the rains. That the rains from heaven are full of water, they're abundant, which in a dry and arid land like uh, ancient Israel and Palestine would have been especially uh, graphic to his hearers and to his readers, but even for us. But it might also be referring to the stream of God which flowed out of Eden to enrich the nations, that it's full of water, 
Perhaps there's a double entendre here, and he's referring to both. Whatever the case may be, that from which God flows is abundant and full, and he's not stingy. You have crowned the year with your bounty, and your paths drip with fatness. Children, that's a weird phrase, isn't it? Paths drip with fatness. What could that mean? Well, what it's referring to is cart paths. It's paths that are cut into the ground by, by cartwheels as they carry produce from the, from the barn to the market or from country into the city. And what the psalmist is saying here is that every time that cart hits a bump, you know, some, some grain falls off. And it falls into the furrows. And so then they are filled with the fatness of your abundance. Now, if you've never farmed, maybe, you know, this thought occurred to me while I was sitting in my dining room. Maybe you, you have some experience with Legos. And you, you try to grab all the Legos you need for a project. And you dip your hands into the bin and you get them up like this. And you walk across the house. And what ultimately falls to the ground, these little landmines for your mom and your dad to step on in the dark, Legos all over the place, because your hands are just full of them. Or moms and dads, perhaps you have the experience like I have when you have a bunch of kids and you go into the dryer and you pull out all the clothes and you're like, oh, there's not a hamper around. And so you try to get it all in one hand and take it into the living room to sort. And Almost always a sock or two falls on the ground in the way to, on the way to the living room. This is the image that David is giving to us. An image of abundance and fullness. It's a good image. It's not a frustrating image. Legos and laundry are frustrating. But, you know, for a farmer to have too much grain for his cart to hold, he wouldn't be upset about the few pounds that fall off the sides because what it indicates to him is he has more than enough. God is not stingy with him. He has crowned the year with bounty. He generously blesses the earth with great abundance as his creation. And why is God's generosity worthy of praise? Is it merely because of our gain? Because we have a lot of Legos to build in a fantastic Lego house with? Or we have a lot of clothes with which to clothe and protect our children? Or we have a lot of grain to make money with? No. It's for our, he's worthy of praise because the Spirit of God, the same Spirit who brings forth produce out of the ground who hovered over the face of the deep, this same spirit gives abundant life to his church. In Acts, we see it in Pentecost, where the spirit falls uh, in, in fulfilling the promise of Christ to his church and gives abundant, propelling life so that they would go out and spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. We see that as the Spirit is sent from the Father and the Son, He is sent for whom? For sinners. For those who are like the desert places, dry, arid, unable to produce anything on their own, and then are made fruitful, verdant green, full of life. The Valley of Dry Bones image in Ezekiel chapter 37 puts this graphically, where God instructs Ezekiel to call out not to living people, but to dead, dry bones that life would come forth. And this is the work of the Spirit in His church today. This is what we pray for and we yearn for, that God would send revival and awakening to our land. 
And as the Holy Spirit, he then does, in fact, revive the church to do what? To praise and worship God, imaged for us in verses 12 and 13. The pastures of the wilderness, these desert places, they drip and the hills gird themselves with what? Whereas God girded himself with strength, the hills gird themselves with rejoicing. They get ready to sing praise to God at the revelation of the sons of God. All creation groans in eager anticipation of this. The meadows are clothed with flocks and the valleys are covered with grain. And so they shout for joy. Yes, they sing. The church in America and around the world, though, we don't, perhaps we don't see such praiseworthy life. Perhaps we, don't, we can't tell such produce. In fact, this year, it seems that the church in large measure has shuttered its doors and is being pressed down with government sanctions and regulations. Think back to Martin Rinkhart in 17th century Germany during the Thirty Years' War. He was behind fortified walls the plague is rampant. There are uh, armies warring in the countryside, casualties being brought in, uh, people who have lost their farms seeking refuge and then bringing sickness with them. There's famine. There's perhaps drought. And yet he pens, now, 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 thank we all our God. A triune Christian hymn of thanksgiving. So how much more can we, who really have it by comparison pretty easy, how much more should we, therefore, sing praises to God? He is, in fact, worthy of all praise. He hears our prayers of distress. He hears our prayers of praise. And he calls us to himself to dwell with him, not only to worship him, but to experience him. You see, all these ordinances that we, that we go through in our worship, whether we take vows or we, we, we confess our sins or we make petitions, they're worthless unless we have an experience of him, if we commune with him. And that is precisely what God calls us to do. He calls us to be in his presence as his people in relationship with him, not merely as servants, but also as sons and daughters that we would know him and experience the sweetness of communion with him, the sweetness of his abundance and generosity. And so he who hears our prayers and who saves your soul, he deserves your praise for this very reason. Have you been quenching that spirit who seeks to give life? In your own thoughts, in your own words, in your own deeds, have you been rejecting and spurning Christ and coming into his worship on, on your own basis, kind of on the basis of your own fleshly desires to put up a good front, to, to please your parents, perhaps? Or maybe so that your neighbors don't notice your car in the driveway on Sunday mornings or afternoons. If so, if that is the case, if that describes your heart when you come into worship, then repent of that. Repent of that and cry out to Christ in faith. For God who enriches the earth, who brings life out of, out of dead, sinful hearts, he deserves your praise. That is what we come here to do. That is what we are called here to do. 
It is to praise the triune God who hears us, saves us, and brings us life, who enriches us abundantly. These rains uh, this weekend, they've been, I mean, at least where I live, they've been gentle rains. There's been a lot of it. It's muddy out. Don't get me wrong. But they've been gentle. Sometimes when the rain comes, it comes in storms, and it might call to mind God's judgment upon us. After all, he flooded the world and destroyed it. But these rains this weekend, they should remind us of his gifts of life to us, his nourishing the ground that life would come forth. These are the rains, the sprinkling of the Holy Spirit that are anticipated in the psalm before us. What does Christ say in response to the Pharisees when they tell him to silence the crowds as they worship him? He says, if they keep silent, the rocks will cry out. All creation is on the edge of its seat anticipating the return of Christ, the Son of God, that they would shout praises to him. How much more then ought we to get out in front of that ourselves and do that here in his midst? We've been called to it. All nations, all men have been called to it. To you all men come, David says in verse 2. And throughout the second book of Psalms, there's this theme of communication to the nations that this God is worthy of praise. Why? Because he has heard the prayers of Israel. He has saved them out of slavery and he has enriched them in the land. God has heard the prayers of his church. He has saved and continues to save generation after generation to sing his praise. And he has richly and abundantly blessed his church. And thus he deserves our praise. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.